And good afternoon. It's 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And coming up on the show today in the first hour, uh, from an October 8th event held at Novel Idea Bookstore, you'll hear Barry Gilbert launching and discussing his uh, new book called One of Us, A Biologist's Walk Among Bears. And in the second hour from an October 25th event held at Novel Idea Bookstore, you'll hear Nikki uh, Reimer uh, launching and reading from her new book, a collection of poetry called My Heart is a Rose Manhattan. And you'll also hear at that same event that evening uh, from each their own selected work, readings by Nancy Jo Cullen and Anita Dolman. Uh, this first, though, the usual hourly announcement. Occasionally some poetry spoken word or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So let's go ahead and move first into uh, uh, the uh, Novel Idea book launch event, uh, the first of two that you've gathered that I'll air this afternoon. Uh, This one uh, is an October 8th event and will essentially fill the hour. You'll hear uh, in it, and I don't know if I mentioned October 8th at Novel Idea Bookstore, Uh, You'll hear uh, Barry Gilbert launching and discussing his new book called One of Us, A Biologist's Walk Among Bears. And you know what? With that, I think I'm just going to go ahead and start it now. It's really nice to uh, talk in an independent local bookstore. I'm much in favor of... uh, supporting local uh, stores, uh, keeps the money circulating, and you get wonderful service like uh, the novel idea. Uh, It reminded me that my uh, father's father, John Nathan Gilbert, uh, had three grocery stores in Kingston at one time until uh, chain Loblaws came along, but uh, he uh, ran stores. You wouldn't remember them. There was one but I remember across from Sydney School, it was a brick uh, uh, grocery store. I used to go up and beg, beg for candy from Grandma. And uh, that was from about 1900 to 1950. My grandfather uh, uh, owned and lived in Bellevue House for uh, 40 years. So when I play my Blue Blood card, I say uh, the Prime Minister, first Prime Minister, is only there for 18 months. But my family was there for 40 years. So, but the Depression uh, impoverished us quickly, and uh, uh, I had to make my way in the world uh, with uh, excellent education, actually. I think one of the marvelous things about growing up in Kingston is a lot of uh, middle-class kids got good schooling from the elementary schools, and uh, KCVI, I think, had terrific uh, teachers. And a lot of people, you just were expected to go to Queens. I think back in those days, Queens was looking for uh, uh, breathing, living bodies, uh, and uh, I was one of them. I uh, ended up uh, taking biology there, and then. Uh, 
luckily the Americans were competing with the Russians for Sputnik and money just seemed to be flowing everywhere and I got support to do masters and PhD work in uh, in zoology at Duke University. I applied there and, and uh, specialized in animal behavior which set me off into uh, into studies of uh, animal communities, but mostly individual animals. Uh, I like to think, looking back at it, that I was kind of a, a cultural anthropologist, but my uh, <laughs> culture was uh, social animals, big animals with big brains, and that includes the wolves. I didn't study wolves, but wolves, dolphins, uh, bears, uh, elephants, chimpanzees which uh, is, is pretty interesting. And my book is, uh, a good bit of it is about uh, the different cultures of bears in North America. There's a tendency to say grizzly bears behave this way. They're either vicious and want to eat your mama, or they're really nice uh, on salmon streams. But it turns out that if you look at uh, grizzly bear communities in places like Yellowstone, the early work there was a, a study of garbage dump bears. The Craighead brothers uh, captured bears that were feeding on uh, huge amounts of uh, garbage from all the hotels. And uh, I, I studied uh, bears for a very short period of time there. One of them uh, took my scalp off and my face off. Uh, and, and you can read it in the first two chapters or you can skip those chapters if you don't want to have uh, nightmares, but uh, I, I, uh, I didn't learn much from that. I decided to go back and study bears uh, some more and ended up in, uh, with a contract in, in Alaska studying salmon bears. And uh, that was the most fun I think I've ever had in my life because uh, you had up to four and five hundred people a day walking around a small stream and, and uh, Katmai is uh, down on the Alaskan Peninsula, down here, about 300 miles southwest of uh, Anchorage. Not an easy place to get to, but uh, a lot of people have been there because uh, uh, it's guaranteed uh, grizzly bears feeding on salmon. And currently, uh, there are probably 60 bears. If you're walking the trails, you'll walk into one of 60 or so bears. And these are 600 pound to 1,000 pound bears. It's, uh, it, it takes a little while to get used to. And of course, uh, when I first went there, I, I flew in for an initial uh, reconnaissance trip, and we landed on the beach, and the uh, superintendent of the park was flying float plane. And I look out the window, and here's this, looks like an elephant with a rug on its back coming down the beach. And of course, it's an Alaskan brown bear, and I thought, what is your problem? <laughs> you know, you're going to have to deal with these. Well, in about two days, I was uh, pretty good with uh, uh, working around the bears, and, and uh, I can't explain it. Uh, I, I asked the horse people. I say, if you fell off your horse or you got kicked, do you give up horsemanship? And probably not. You get back on the horse and uh, ride it again. Anyway, long story short, I. Uh, had a career with uh, studying bears in different places with the U.S. Forest Service, uh, National Park Service, 
And then, uh, of course, all of them think they have problems with safety for, with people, and they're also concerned about the numbers of ecotourists that are coming into these remote areas and uh, bumping bears out, out the river. The bears, of course, have to feed uh, long hours to put on fat for the uh, for their winter denning. So there's both a concern for the conservation of the bears, but there's also a safety concern for people, you know. A uh, plane load of uh, Englishmen or Japanese coming off a plane and, and the Park Service turns them loose in Alaska, you wonder uh, whether they're going to be uh, able to deal with this. And of course, some of them, some of them don't. I remember a story about a woman from Texas and got off and realized that the bears weren't on leashes and she <laughs> went into her cabin, locked the door and, and called the plane and said, I want the next plane out. <laughs> these, aren't, these aren't tame bears. You have to, you have to uh, do your thing with them. Of course, the rangers don't lead you around at this particular uh, location at Brooks River. But interestingly, in 40 years, there has never been an injury in that area, and there are just hundreds of interactions between bears. So uh, getting back to the way I study them, uh, my students and I, we uh, got up in platforms in various places and basically became uh, cultural anthropologists. We wanted to know their behavior, how they related socially to each other, and uh, how they spent their day, their nutritional makeup, all those sorts of things. And uh, I thought this was fairly straightforward because I'd, I'd watched George Schaller study gorillas in Africa and, and Jane Goodall and her chimpanzee work and this sort of thing. But the grizzly bear still gets uh, a bad rap. Maybe it's because it's a very big carnivore and you have to respect it. I mean, it, it isn't a raccoon that uh, you can take a stick to or kick it in the butt if it's uh, uh, destroying things in your garage. Uh, you have to have some restraint with grizzly bears, obviously, and uh, know what you're doing, which uh, apparently I didn't do on my first encounter. <laughs> that was actually my uh, first year as an academic, and I did this study, and it was my first week in Yellowstone. It was the first day we saw grizzly bears. And I got hauled off in a helicopter and spent two months in the hospital. So uh, that didn't work out too well, but uh, I feel very fortunate that after that, I uh, had a great career and uh, ended up writing a book. Did you notice? <laughs> yeah, I was uh, hoping to be able to pick one up. Yeah, good one. <laughs> anyway, uh, it was fun uh, putting together these stories about Bears on the coast versus mountain bears, Banff, Jasper, Yoho, all of our parks, Glacier Park in the States. Uh, I think the bears are, are uh, clearly more dangerous there because they're hungrier. They follow, tend to follow food, yours, and uh, they don't like to be crowded. So there's uh, a lot of opportunity for clashes. I, I just read the other day about some guy he ended up being killed. He rode a mountain bike into a, a male grizzly at about 25 miles an hour. And uh, the bear didn't like that and uh, taught him a lethal lesson. But uh, mountain bikes, especially now with uh, electronic uh, mountain bikes, gets to be more and more of a problem. And there's a big uh, 
big conflict in wilderness areas that the other bikes should be allowed. Some people feel like they're not a motorized vehicle, but that, that's a, that's another uh, another topic. Uh, just uh, as an example of, I, I I got quite interested in the cognitive ability of bears. You think they're all alike. And uh, I'll never forget uh, seeing uh, a mother bear drop cubs near a big group of people and then leave them. Uh, and the ranger said, now there's an example of a bad mom. She abandons her cubs. And the park service, of course, holds people back about 50 yards, which is the required distance. And then I, I uh, started to think about the threats that uh, female bears have for their cubs, and it's mostly male bears that will kill cubs. And this female had figured out that male bears never come near groups of people. So she would take her cubs over, drop them off, and of course they sit there sucking their claws and playing with their toes, and they've got a ring of rangers around them. And then mom comes back after she's fed. They, she, mom can't take the cubs into deep, cold, uh, fast-running water. The cubs, uh, cubs would drown. In fact, one day, one of the cubs uh, didn't want to be left on shore because they like to stay right next to mom. So this little cub, this big, uh, swam out into the river. And the mother looks at it like this and takes this big paw like a frying pan and just goes clonk and drives the little cub underwater, and uh, that was a bit of tough love. The cub said, okay, you don't want me to follow you, I'm going back to shore. <laughs> and of course it was okay, but she uh, realized that she wasn't gonna catch any fish if she had a cub hanging on her back most of the time, or swimming <laughs> around, she'd have to rescue the cub. But So the long and the short is, uh, if you watch these animals long enough, you get to know their individual behavior, and then you start to see their social relationships, and then you see that they have a, a, a learned uh, culture that they transmit to their young. And uh, the one population at Brooks uh, River uh, that I studied uh, caught fish at the falls. Uh, you know, there's something like 10 to 20,000 salmon, I think uh, sockeye salmon go up. They stand on the falls, you've probably seen videos of this, and catch them as they leap over the uh, two-meter falls. Uh, but then the fish that avoid the bears uh, go on up into the watersheds, huge lake with tributaries, but 50 tributaries on a Brooks uh, Lake. And the, and the uh, bears have a highway that's this wide in the sphagnum moss and about this deep, or if they're hundreds of years, They've left the falls and they go up to these tributaries and kill the, the same run of salmon and, uh, that are breeding there, uh, building nests. And uh, then the salmon start dying and drift down river and the, and the bears go out and again. And then they wash out into the lake and then the bears go out in the lake and duck dive down in eight or 10 feet of water and pick up salmon on the lake. And I'm thinking, there's a, a culture that's learned to access and exploit one run of salmon through the whole life cycle of the salmon. And that, that was uh, pretty impressive because uh, 
the adults learn it, and then the cubs come with mom, and they have to memorize all those tricks. And when mom disappears, or a two or three year old male gets kicked out, he's no longer allowed to be in the family. He has to then remember all those uh, various places. The second part of it that, that uh, fascinated me too was uh, all these bears going up trails through the forest are depositing pieces of salmon, urinating, defecating, dying into the forest. You say, well, yeah, that's what animals do. But if you think in terms of 500 or 1,000 years, this is fertilizer that's causing the forests to grow. We think temperate rainforests just grow because the temperature's great and the rainfall's optimum, uh, etc. But in fact, uh, animals like grizzly bears, and there are about 105 other species that eat salmon that take salmon nutrients up into the forest. And, and this kind of blew me away. Because if you think about it, in ecosystem terms, rainfalls carries all the nitri nitrogen, nitrates, and phosphates off the land into the ocean. You think, well, the ocean gets rich, and then all the uh, land will be desert eventually because all the nutrients are washed away. But the salmon and the bears and the other species are the reverse process. The salmon swim up from the ocean, taking the nutrients in their body up into the land, and they're kind of care packages uh, that are going to the, to the bears. The bears catch them, eat them in the forest, and uh, all the nutrients from them are uh, fertilizing the forest. Turns out, uh, people that study tree growth found that uh, uh, the big trees like hemlocks and Sitka spruce grow 35% faster when there's a salmon stream nearby than when there isn't. So they're absolutely integral to the, uh, to the richness of the forest. And of course, you have to think in terms of thousands of years to see the, the final effect of this sort of thing. But the common view is, ah, oh, if we don't have grizzly bears, then the fish will die and something else will eat them, the maggots will eat them and all this sort of thing. But nothing moves the distances that a grizzly bear does or some of the larger uh, carnivores that are carrying the nutrients up slope. And uh, of course, they eat tremendous amount of berries, too. I did estimates of something like 300, 400,000 berries eaten a day by a bear that's uh, feeding on huckleberry or lowbush cranberry or something like that. And of course, they're pooping these out all, of the, all over the areas where they're moving. So they're not only seeding it, but they're fertilizing the land. So this is what drives biologists just up the wall. They just love it. Because <laughs> it's a great story. But we tend to uh, we tend to break these systems down. We say, oh, we got 200 grizzly bears, 300 in, in the park. That's, that's enough. But these, uh, these functions, of course, don't work unless you have uh, historic or optimal numbers of the carnivores. And uh, Carnivores hadn't done very well in North America. We, uh, as a society of hated wolves, uh, we bought cattle and sheep then, so uh, we hate wolves, we hate grizzly bears, we uh, hate mountain lions by and large because we poisoned them, trapped them, and basically got rid of them. So that's where the conservation side uh, that I get involved, I try to make the case that uh, 
we need more theirs and we need to connect the various ecosystems like Yellowstone and parts of Idaho up the glacier and all these places that theirs would do well. But unfortunately, as soon as the grizzly bears uh, get delisted, then the states of Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming uh, get to manage them. And what they do is management is set up hunting seasons. And uh, I actually had a, a couple of days in Washington, D.C., where I spoke to a subcommittee uh, on a bill. Uh, Sierra Club uh, asked me to go and paid my way. But I was trying to make the case that uh, hunting grizzly bears doesn't make any more sense than hunting bald eagles, really. Even if you can show there's a surplus, people people want more more grizzly bears, and they don't view them as uh, trophy hunters, trophy hunting. But uh, some uh, areas, that's uh, Slurry Club International, that's not a popular view. They don't want to shoot lions and rhinoceros and grizzly bears or whatever. Currently, Alaska, I think, uh, kills about five or 600 uh, brown bears, grizzly bears a year. And they have, of course, lots of salmon runs, and it's, it maintains the population. But there's also um, a lot of interest in killing more predators because they want to eat caribou and moose and elk. And uh, they think that by killing the carnivores that are competing with them, uh, Calm down, Barry. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, this is one of those policy clashes where you got the hunters against the conservationists. So, uh, how are we doing? I think uh, maybe we could have some uh, question and answers uh, if uh, if you uh, have any thoughts. That's Margaret. Me? Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned the three cultures. What was the third culture? Of the first culture of bears? No, the three of them. Could you name them again? Uh, you said the... I, uh, 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 the one uh, that was uh, uh, oh, fed uh, off the garbage pails and yeah, and then yeah, there was a garbage uh, culture in uh, Yellowstone when uh, John and Frank Craighead first did their work at the end of the 50s. Uh, then there are what I call, uh, and, and it's a generality, but there are mountain bears that feed on upwards of a thousand different plants and animals, uh, and they're in a nutritionally challenged state. Bears go through a overeating, a hypothasia, excessive eating in the fall. And uh, in Alaska and Denali Park, they feed something like 18 hours a day, turning over rocks and trying to catch things. But uh, the easy life is uh, bears on salmon streams, because once they hit a salmon stream, that culture focuses totally on salmon. And I watched one bear. Uh, I was on a, in a, a tree platform, and the, and the bear brought all the fish under, underneath it, ate a salmon, a five-pound salmon, in uh, one minute and 30 seconds. And uh, in an hour and a half, ate 23 salmon. I mean, I couldn't get 23 salmon sitting on this table here. And uh, they do that day after day. And of course, uh, they... They get absolutely globular. They're so fat that uh, they can hardly walk. And uh, 
One of them that I thought was hilarious was uh, a big fat bear that was in the lower estuary and he went up on the shore, up to his shoulders in water, put his head on a bank just above the water and went to sleep. He had a, <laughs> a water bed <laughs> standing there and snoring away. Then I saw another one that I thought was uh, eating very slowly and the head would go down and the head would come up and he never had a fish in his mouth. And it was another one of these uh, thousand pound bears. It turned out he was sleeping, but he was like a like a whale. He'd sleep underwater and then he'd come up and breathe. <laughs> Dennis? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm wondering, uh, what's the difference of hibernation in Alaska to somewhere south like in Yellowstone? Good question. Uh, Yellowstone is high and very cold, and they have a long period of uh, uh, hibernation. It isn't true hibernation like rodents. Rodents uh, uh, that hibernate get so cold that you could pick one out of its uh, hibernaculum and stick it in your fridge, and it would be hard to feel, and you'd just set it in the fridge, and in April you'd take it out and let it go. <laughs> Bears uh, drop their heart rates, drop their breathing rate, but they're uh, they're quite alive, and and they're uh, converting uh, their fat into water and uh, and uh, CO2 basically, and and energy of course to keep their keep their body going. The, the truly marvelous thing about uh, grizzly bear hibernation is that when they lie down for basically six months, they uh, do not lose any bone material. If you and I, or an astronaut, is suspended for a week or so, we start dumping calcium immediately. And of course, you probably realize that astronauts, when they come back to Earth, can hardly walk. Their bones would break. They, they have to get the pressure on the bones again to uh, strengthen them. There's lose none of that. They don't urinate at all. All of the nitrogen that would go into their urine gets recycled back into, into the bloodstream, either building protein or, or something else. So they're really a, a, a marvelous uh, creature. The adaptations for hibernation uh, are really amazing. Come on in. And Barry, they take the babies into hibernation? Uh, yes, they do. The, the young are uh, born in the den, of course. They breed in uh, June and July, but uh, the fertilization is only to the uh, zygote stage, uh, two or three or four cells, and then it doesn't implant in the uterus. It doesn't implant for a couple of months. And then uh, the belief is the adaptation is uh, so, so that the the cub won't be too big. The mother's only got so much milk. Okay. So when the cubs are born, they're one of the smallest mammals in relationship to the size of the mother. A grizzly bear cub is about uh, two pounds when it's born. It's really amazingly small. And, and it's uh, nursing the, in hibernation? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, nursing and then uh, they nurse for a continuous period of time. Then that cub will also hibernate with the mother the next year. And they, some of them keep their cubs around for three years, but usually three years the female comes into estrus again and the uh, youngsters are, uh, are kicked off. 
So when you were studying them, did you get to know them individually and were you making notes and you had named or numbered sure. certain ones yeah. and their we characteristics? We and we photographed them. It's really tricky, of course, because they're going from skinny little wretches and then they change their fur and they change their weight. So you have to have a continuous uh, log of the animals through the summer. And when I was there, we only had 18 or 20 bears. My student, Tamara Olson, had to learn 40 or 50 of them. But she was really good at it and spent a lot of time. And how would you know to differentiate from one to the other? What, were there certain yeah, characteristics? Yeah, ears, uh, nails, of course, they get scars on their face. Oh. Uh, behavioral traits, some of them uh, are very peculiar in the way uh, they behave, either the way they catch fish or where they fish, those sort of things. So you try to pick three or four characteristics to uh, identify them. But we sat uh, in the towers in three different places, and uh, I developed a system of currency. We called it uh, their hours per observation hour, because we wanted to know what the time budgets were of bears and people. So if the people went up like this, we'd have quantitative data, and the bears might go like this. So we could do cause and effect based on the time budgets of the bears. And it was, uh, it was really useful. And, and the reason I did it that way is to have a location for a study, say, 30 years in the, into the future. Somebody come back, read our papers, and do exactly the same thing and make a direct comparison of the, uh, of the behavior of the bears in response to people, if that's what you're interested in. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, that's why I call it a, a kind of uh, cultural anthropology, because we got to know individual bears. It's kind of like they said about the Inuit. Eh? The Inuit family is a man and a woman, two children, and an anthropologist. <laughs> <laughs> Question. Yeah. Did you ever find reverse process going on there, observing? You're observing and learning something a little bit or reacting to what you were doing? Great, great question. Yeah. yeah. There was one instance, I, I didn't see it directly, but this young woman was on her way to the, to the falls to observe uh, the bears at the falls, and she ran into a bear coming the other direction. She kind of freaked out and thought, uh, I'd better lie down. I was told the thing to do is lie down and curl up if there's a bear coming at you. Well, the ranger came along about 10 minutes later, and here he sees this woman all curled up like this, and about five feet from there is a bear fast asleep. <laughs> the bear had come along and saw the woman lie down, and they, he, I put words in the bear's mouth. He said, uh, oh, this is a good, safe place to go to sleep. I got a gut full of fish, and I'm looking for a place to sleep. Two, two sets of eyes are better than one. <laughs> and the bear, uh, Thank you. Absolutely watched what the person was doing. Uh, <laughs> Do bears have predators? Uh, mostly other bears and humans, yeah. Big males are uh, avoided at, at all costs, especially by females and young. And uh, they, uh, they can be nasty, nasty suckers. I saw a video of a, a big bear eating a bat out of a, a bear in the middle of the river. I mean, the people were just freaking out. They had to call rangers and guide everybody out. 
this this little dare was standing. It couldn't drop down or it had drowned, and it was standing in the river. And the video just kept going on, and the bear was eating the middle of its back out. And I found the carcass the next day. And is this just done for food? It's hard to say. Uh, with so many salmon around, it could be competitive. That's an evolutionary question. But uh, big male bears, the one that killed uh, Tim Treadwell mm. on the coast was a big old bear. It had been caught once. I don't know whether catching him made it a man-hater, but it pulled him and his uh, companion, Amy Huguenard, out of their tent and killed him and ate them uh, uh, on the spot. And uh, it was not a friendly bear. He'd spent 13 years all with the bears there. He knew what he was doing, except he wouldn't take any advice about putting electric fences or getting up in towers. He called me one time and he said, Barry, the, the bears are bumping into my tent. And I wrote this in my book. I said, Tim, when a bear bumps your tent, it isn't an accident. He doesn't want you to be there. Get the hell out of there and get up on the platform. He wouldn't listen. He wouldn't even care bear spray because it wasn't nice for the bears to have a weapon. I thought <laughs> <laughs> that's what's called a sympathetic fallacy. If you love the bears, they'll love you back. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> yes. So do the females and the males socialize or fish together? Or yeah, pretty, pretty together much. Yeah, the females tend to stay away from them. Some of the males, uh, unless it's the breeding season, then the males tear each other apart to get out the females, you know, typical male behavior. And uh, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the worst time in terms of the strife between bears. So there'd be a female that other males were. Yeah, when she comes, for. when a female comes in the heat, then the males might come 20 miles away. They got, they've got uh, olfactory lobes that we don't even understand yet. But uh, the the part of the brain that's co committed to olfaction is uh, is better than any other mammal, better than dogs. And they can probably they can probably smell. Uh, dead animal two feet under the snow just by sticking the nose in and the molecules that percolate up. The Craigheads used to say that uh, the bears they had collars on could find a carcass 20 miles away and make a beeline for it. So you said bears are one of the five maybe animals that have the biggest brains? Well, there are a lot of them. Can you rate them? Um, the ones we've uh, studied, it's kind of hard to rate the intelligence of animals. You know, they have skills that we don't even start. We're anosmic. We, we don't, our sense of smell. Right. You smell really terrible to a bear, but uh, I haven't noticed any problem. <laughs> <laughs> they just really uh, have skills that way. And of course, bats have hearing uh, that's right. unbelievable too. But uh, you said big brains. I will. Yeah, I big brains. In fact, yeah. that makes me think that uh, that uh, we ought to be separating bears on those that have uh, big hardware, like big brains that's programmable, and others that, uh, like grasshoppers and lobsters, that are basically instinctive robots. They don't learn a whole lot, and they don't transmit it. But the big mammals, like humans, I mean, we, uh, our cultures are all 
uh, I don't want to anger any postmodernists here, but uh, almost all our cultures are learned and passed on. And uh, some of them are dysfunctional, we may find out in the next uh, yeah. 20 years. How yes. do you think that um, the Grizzlies um, vote in, in Canada? It, 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 I gather there's only Grizzlies in BC, is that correct? No, they're oh, black bears, uh, BC yeah. too. Yeah. So how, how is their situation? Is there something that uh, Canadians can do or to keep the populations up to... to well, they've to already hold? done a lot. They yeah. stopped uh, trophy hunting in British Columbia. Yeah. And uh, bear viewing is a, is a huge uh, business on the coast. There's something like 60 companies that uh, have ecotourism, whale watching and all that, but 60 of them advertise bear viewing, and uh, people come from all over the world. Yeah. Uh, Two-part question, though. Yeah. With the demise of a lot of salmon stocks now out west, that's concerning, isn't it? Yes, it is, and uh, as, as things warm up, you, know, you may Sam, have seen them, uh, yeah. they've had some gaunt-looking bears yes. in uh, Night Inlet where we did studies. I don't know whether the pink salmon crashed in that area, but you know, when you clear-cut the forests and the streams, the rivulets and the headwaters all warm up a lot faster because the water isn't in the shade, yeah. and as uh, glaciers melt, then you also yeah. don't have that cold water. But uh, it's worrying. The salmon are, are doing very well in Alaska, by and large. Bristol Bay <coughs> at the west end that feeds into Naknek uh, Lake and all that drainage. They had 200 million uh, sockeye salmon this uh, year. That's terrific. But they, species they like went north of the Skeena. BC's lost out on the salmon because of the warmer temperatures in Is that right in the Skeena? So yeah. it's been a it's been great for Alaska but uh, the the coast of BC has really suffered. Yeah, I and, agree. And the Skeena, you know, there's a thousand miles of river. I think the Chinooks go yeah. right up into central British Columbia. So I, I moved to BC in the early seventies. I worked in the bush for twenty five years. I've had numerous encounters with grizzlies. And the only thing I want to add is their cognitive skills, their intelligence is yeah. unbelievable. Oh, I had a friend that was driving up the Kispiox Valley, and a grizzly came out in front of him and ran down the road. And he was driving right behind him, and he looked down, and he said he was doing 60 kilometers an hour, and the bear took off. Yeah. And then my son worked on a drilling rig, and one of these contract helicopter pilots decided to buzz this big boar. Yeah. It was on the side of a mountain, so he came down and, you know, taking pictures and everything. And it's a true story. That boar made his way into that camp, and he destroyed the one helicopter <laughs> that the guy buzzed him with, and he left the other ones. So, and one more story. Um, a hunter shot a massive grizzly uh, just off Utsa Lake on the Utsik. Uh, there's a there's a trail from Utsa Lake into Utsik, mm -hmm. and he, him and the guide went in after the bear, and the bear, he was wounded. He did a great big circle, and waited for them. Yeah. And when the, he killed that hunter, when that hunter came. In. So well, I, I they they got brains. totally capable of yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And I worry about we've had 50 years of uh, capturing and radio collaring bears in right. Yellowstone system. And when you look at the behavior of a bear let out of the culvert trap, you know, when they oh, lift yeah. the gate, they go nuts. They try yeah, and tear the tires off the trucks and 
only when the biologists lean on the horn does it there then take off. But it, it's angry as the devil. Oh, the, yeah. And, they, and of course, if you use a, a snare on the leg, they fight the snares and they'll tear trees down tear to trees try and down. get out of the yeah. snare. So I've had biologists, people not studying their behavior, telling me that I'm full of little red berries, that uh, the capturing doesn't have Some any of the old effect. Old timers told me one guy that I knew really well said he he watched uh, he was out hunting moose, and he, a cow moose was just across the clearing, and a grizzly ran and tore that moose right down and killed it huh. right, right on the spot. You know, so and another one. Well, they can run as fast as a resource. Uh, yeah, and uh, and they found bull clear. moose buried with just one horn sticking out of the out of the ground. So. Huh? Lots of power. Yeah. Any uh, other questions? What does a hunter do with a dead grizzly bear? What's Good the question. why? What um, do they do with it's it? It's called trophy hunting. Um, they they want the pelt put on the wall. Oh. Some of them, uh, some oh. of them mount the whole thing, the head, uh, and make it a, into a rug. Others oh. just save the skull and the claws. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, that's, I think, a, a declining. There's so much resistance against it. I mean, it's like shooting big dogs, as far as I can tell, the grizzly bear. I have a friend, Doug Seuss, who raises uh, grizzly bears for Hollywood in uh, Utah. And he, he had a bear, big old Bart, that was, uh, he couldn't stand up in this room. And uh, he would play with it and fight it. and put his head inside Bart's jaws, which are about this big. And it was like a great big puppy. Um, and it never did uh, injure him. It finally died of cancer of the leg uh, when it was quite an old bear. But uh, they're, they're like uh, really intelligent dogs and, uh, you know. So what was your biggest surprise? Surprise! Oh yeah. Well, they didn't die. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I got I mean, forty-two. You, your bear surprise, a bear surprise. I think the, their ability to uh, accommodate people on places like salmon streams, the density of them is unbelievable, and when they. Uh, when they accommodate to other bears, then they can also accommodate or ad adapt or habituate. Because if you've got a river full of uh, salmon, there isn't any payoff, ecologically speaking, to fighting over a super abundant resource. You know, if we were all half starved here and there were 100 pizzas, I'm not going to take on Steve to fight for 10 pizzas. pizzas. I'm going to start eating. Mm -hmm. and eat as fast as I can, mm -hmm. right? And that's what the bears do. I mean, it's completely in line with uh, ecological theory that uh, if there's uh, super abundance of food and there's no risk to you, then you don't compete. You start to compete and get defensive and even territorial when you have to defend a, a food supply over a period of time. But uh, salmon are kind of unique. They're uh, they just keep coming. You think of other foods like berries. Uh, there's only one set of ripe berries, and all the birds and all the other animals want to eat them. So bears get in there and chow down as fast as they can, and then they're gone. So there's no residual nature to berries. Most foods that bears get at uh, 
aren't replaced like salmon are. <coughs> so it's really, you know, you catch some salmon, there's more, and then there's more, and there's more. So uh, it's, it's a bit of unique ecology. But you only see it, uh, I think the, the amazing thing about landing in Katmai Park in Brooks River is that, uh, and it's uh, down uh, on the uh, coast, this is Alaska, it's way down here. It's a huge park, and the bears have been protected for a long, long period of time. No hunting, so they're not afraid of people. Uh, they have surplus food, so they're not interested in your, your uh, picnic lunch. You could leave uh, ham sandwiches around. They're going to pass them up because they want uh, salmon, which are very rich in oils. Bears are actually uh, interested in mostly fat. And that's why Lewis and Clark, I, uh, I bought 13 volumes of uh, uh, Dr. Gary Moulton's University of Nebraska uh, edition of the Lewis and Clark journals, the whole thing, and I went through and read every instance where there was a human-bear interaction. It took me weeks and weeks. Uh, the scholars, even Gary Moulton wrote in his index, bears, comma, grizzlies, comma, attacks by. There weren't any. He was a historian, and he did a beautiful job uh, printing it, but he never analyzed what actually went on. When they look at it, uh, the Lewis and Clark group, I guess there were what, 26, 27 people, uh, were trying to get rich food, and they killed bears to fry all the other meat in. If they got a deer or an antelope, they killed a thousand pronghorn crossing the country. Uh, but if the uh, ungulate uh, hoofed animal was uh, rather skinny, no fat. They either left it or they fried it in bear grease. And one uh, male bear rendered five gallons of fat, must have been late in the fall. Mm -hmm. But all of that was really important. Uh, as you might imagine, hauling boats over the Rocky Mountains, especially if you got a steel one mm. with a big uh, Newfoundland dog in it, <laughs> takes an awful lot of energy. And of course, that's what they were—that's what they were focusing on. It turns out there's something called starved rabbit disease. That uh, if you have access to, uh, uh, let's say you're in the in the Arctic and uh, you're eating Arctic hares, but they're all skinny, uh, you cook them up and you'll eat them, and then you die. Your stomach's full of protein, but your body can't digest it. It can't break it down. Can't make energy out of it. What you need is fat or uh, carbohydrate, but I don't. That's as much as I understand. Nobody's been able to. They call it starved rabbit disease, but um, apparently everybody <laughs> learned about it. But uh, the, the uh, digestion physiology is kind of murky, so don't let people talk you out of fat. Yeah. <laughs> I like fat too. <laughs> Any other uh, comments or questions? Bear stories. A silly question. Do the biting insects bother the bears? Uh, <coughs> if they do, you wouldn't notice it. Yeah. And I, you don't see a lot of flies around bears. We had all kinds of white socks, which are like a black fly. Yeah. One thing that bothers uh, bears is porcupines. They can't resist biting them. I've seen <laughs> bears with knobs full of porcupine quills, and I don't know how they eat in their paws with porcupine quills. But a lot of dogs are like that too. 
What's that? You did call him a big dog. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, they see something, they got to eat it, you know. And bears don't look at things, they investigate with their teeth. If you lose your bicycle seat or the tires on your bicycle or a water bottle is chewed all to pieces, it's because a bear is investigating it with its teeth. We tend to look at things, bears don't bother looking, they just chew on it and see whether it's worth eating or not. Maybe we can uh, break up and uh, be happy to talk some more, or you can uh, buy a book or steal one. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks, Gary. And you just heard at an October 8th event held at Novel Idea Bookstore. Uh, Barry Gilbert uh, launching and discussing his new book, One of Us, uh, A Biologist's Walk Among Bears. It was a fun night that night, so happy to share it today. Tell you what, let's do this, and I'll be right back. Folk Everything, every Saturday morning from 10 till noon on CFRC. Traditional folk, modern folk, future folk, and strange deviations from the norm. Hear the legacy of folk music and discover new favorites and forgotten classics on Folk Everything. Join me every Saturday morning at 10 for a romp through folk culture here on CFRC. Says Red to James, that's a fine motorbike. The staff at Martha's Table provides a caring place where people in need can have nutritious meal for only $1. Now you can get involved in this great cause. Martha's Table is looking for volunteers to help in the kitchen, at the drop-in center, picking up food, or even being a friendly face at fundraising events. Volunteer orientation is every Thursday at 4.30 in the drop-in center, and volunteers must be 14 years of age or older. You can donate using a credit card through marthastable.ca, or you can send your donation by mail, cash, check, or bank draft. Martha's Table, 629 Princess Street, Whether it's volunteering, donating, or anything else that you can offer Martha's Table, visit their website, marthastable.ca. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. The Four Directions Aboriginal Student Centre, located at 146 Berry Street, offers resources and services for Aboriginal students at Queen's University. Among its many services, the centre offers a Three Sisters Feast Weekly on Wednesdays from 5 to 7 p.m. at the centre, prepared by staff or a guest chef. The centre is open daily, Monday to Friday, and hosts events throughout the year. For more information, visit queensu.ca slash fdasc. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Again, we are located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, uh, here every afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. And we do stream live online, www.cfrc.ca. And uh, 
not quite to the end of it yet. We're getting pretty close. I don't know. I've got this echo going on in here today. Not really quite sure. Maybe I'll look at that uh, during the next hour while I'm off the air, but it's just unusual, I guess. And anyway, as we'll say, uh, even though we're getting close to the end of the first hour, I'd like to say thanks for tuning in to it and hope you can stay tuned to the second hour. I'm going to uh, air another book launch in that uh, hour. I'll also be uh, spending a bit of time uh, sharing, uh, I think I have some time to share events, and I will at least mention uh, we are approaching the last week of our funding drive, so I want to touch base, uh, I want to touch on that here in a minute, and also um, probably at least mention it again in the second hour. Uh, my Usual mention, though, that I won't usually do at the end of each hour that I do want to uh, get in is that uh, each hour of this show each week is loaded, uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after uh, the show ends and I get home. And you will find them there at the blog space uh, address is finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. Uh, they will remain there for four years and uh, speaking of the funding drive uh, we did a little bit differently this year it's still an annual funding drive we did it in November last year again this year instead of a week uh, like we've done in the past a week to eight to nine days whatever it turned out ten days I think occasionally uh, so it runs through uh, next Saturday so November 30th and just briefly because uh, We've talked about it, and for those of you that have just kind of, it's mostly a lot of people have already donated, and I'd really like to thank you for having done that. Uh, we have some challenges this year, and uh, we're going to work through them, and uh, uh, you, your support is definitely helpful. And uh, I would just mention that we are the show first aired in 1922, has operated continuously since, is the oldest community university-based uh, radio station in the world. Uh, and uh, the, the funding drive, as I mentioned, began uh, November 3rd. And it's run this year as uh, an, another thing that's different. It's run as a GoFundMe campaign. So essentially, it is all run through our website. So I'd encourage you to check out details there. Uh, just go to uh, www.cfrc.ca. And right on that uh, home page, it'll start to guide you through. Uh, if you just let the image change, it will take you to the next image that will explain uh, how you can take part in the funding drive if you haven't already and if it's something you'd like to do. And so we could use your help. I'll just le let it go at that. And again, my heartfelt thanks. There are a number of you that already have. And my heartfelt thanks to those of you out there. What I will do is uh, touch on a couple of events. It looks like I've got about five minutes here. <clears throat> Get to the right page. Uh, keep going through. There's the last, for those of you who are novel writers, uh, uh, November is uh, National Novel Writing Month, also called, called abbreviated as Nano. NaNoWriMo, I don't say it often enough for it just to roll off my tongue, but that's how it is. So NaNoWriMo, I believe. 
And Kingston Frontenac Public Library has teamed up with Kingston uh, NaNoWriMo uh, to provide space for local writers participating in November. Uh, again, it is the National uh, Novel Writing Month. They're, they've had those. These have happened every Monday evening at different branches. Uh, and there's only one remaining because there's only one Monday in November left. So that's actually coming up uh, this Monday from 2 to 4 p.m., uh, Monday, November 25th. And it's going to be at the Central Branch, which is located at 130 Johnson Street. And uh, you don't need to register. They're just drop-in sessions. And so just kind of like... Uh, kind of like uh, just a collective where a lot of people are just doing the same thing so and a lot of uh, a lot of support in just uh, gearing up and doing things like that together so it's good for I think it helps creativity sometimes so it's open to adult and teen writers and uh, there is free Wi-Fi electrical outlets and it says there may be even a few snacks so and this is if you want more information uh, www.kfpl.ca that's the libraries, or you can contact Ann Hall at 613-549-8888, extension 3528. And uh, again, final final one of those this coming Monday, November 25th, 2 to 4 p.m. at the Central Branch on Johnson Street, Kingston Frontenac Public Library. One thing I want to mention as well that's also happening on Monday it's called the Anwa's End Violence to Women Day. Uh, in 1999, the UN designated November 25th as the National Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Uh, the Ontario Native Women's Association is hosting a poetry reading across the province on that day. One of them will be here, and uh, they would welcome anyone who would like to attend. Uh, there is a Facebook link uh, that I'll give you. There's more information. It's going to be happening on Monday, November 25th from 6 to 9 p.m. It's at uh, the HARS uh, Center, H-A-R-S. That's 844 Princess Street here in Kingston. And the Facebook uh, event, uh, which is shorter than normal, so I'm just going to read it out. So www.facebook.com slash O-N-W-A-7. So should get you some more information there. And the following night uh, at the Grad Club on November the 26th, uh, Alan Breezemaster, Meg Freer, Alan Breezemaster is from Toronto, and two locals, Meg Freer and Gary Raspberry, uh, will be doing a, uh, I believe they're all going to read poetry, poetry reading and book launch. Alan uh, will read from and launch his new poetry collection called The Long Bond, Selected and New Poems. And joining him that evening again locally, uh, Meg Freer and Gary Raspberry will read from each their own selected work that evening. Uh, doors open at 7 p.m. with reading starting at 7.30. And this is happening at the Grad Club and in the Henderson Room there. So Tuesday, November 26th, so this coming Tuesday, from 7 to 9 p.m., there is a Facebook uh, event notice for that. Uh, uh, much too long of a number to read, so I'm just going to suggest that if you're interested, uh, do a book launch in Ellen Breezemaster or Meg Freer or 
just a combination of words should just get you right there. And uh, how are we doing for time? Oh, there it is. It's 5 o'clock already. So I'm going to go ahead and move into the second hour. And welcome, uh, especially for those of you who just tuned in, maybe even more especially for those of you that uh, carried through from the first hour. So thank you, all of you, for uh, tuning in. You are listening to uh, the second hour of Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and I'm here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online, again, at www.cfrc.ca. And in the second hour, you're going to hear from an October 25th event held at Novel Idea Bookstore again. Uh, Nikki Reimer will be launching and reading from her book, a collection of poetry called my Heart is a Rose Manhattan. You'll also hear from the same event that evening, uh, each of them reading from their own selected work, uh, Nancy Jo Cullen uh, from uh, Kingston and Anita Dolman, who I believe came down from Ottawa. Uh, this first, though, the usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry spoken word and or music played on this show is played... Uh, in its entirety, even though it contain, may contain strong language, but played in its entirety uh, with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So as it rolled out that evening, up first from, again, that October 25th event held at Novel Idea Bookstore, uh, you'll hear a reading by Nancy Jo Cullen. Here she is. Well, welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming out. Uh, it's a beautiful night for poetry. And uh, we should thank Oscar and Joanna for this space and always being there for, for us. Let's give them a hand. And thanks so much for coming out. I thought it was just a beautiful fall day here today. It was like, for me, it was just like perfect. It uh, was a still day, completely still day, and those happen so infrequently. So I don't know why it struck me that way. But it will be only matched by the beauty here and the readings tonight. How's that? Uh, up first, Nancy Jo Cullen is the fourth recipient of the Writers Trust Dane Ogilvy. 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 Ogilvy Prize for LGBT Emerging Writer. Her fiction and poems have appeared in Canadian, uh, Best Canadian Poetry 2018, The Journey Prize, The Puritan, Grain, <coughs> Filling Station, Plentitude, Prairie Fire, This Magazine, Room, and Arc Poetry Magazine. She has published three collections of poetry with Calgary's Frontenac House Press. Her short story collection, Canary, was published in 2013 by Biblioasis. Her novel, The Western Alienation Merit Badge, that launched here earlier this year, didn't it? It did, indeed, yeah. Uh, is published by Wolsack and Wynn. She is midway through her fourth collection of poetry titled, Nothing Will Save Your Life. Let's bring up Nancy Jo Cullen. <laughs> done a lot of organizing for this reading and so uh, great thanks to Bruce because he's uh, 
been in communication with the three of us, and it's been really nice. So I'm going to read a few poems from my collection, which is a little more than midway through now, um, and about as happy as the title suggests, so I'm sorry. I started writing it uh, when I realized about the same time uh, that as a pessimist, I, I started to realize that Donald Trump was going to win the nomination, and everybody would say, no, 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 and I'd be like, yeah, that guy's going to win, and it was kind of really upsetting me, and I started writing poetry again, I guess, out of that, but anyway, and watching Friends, all ten seasons of Friends, mm -hmm. to try and calm myself, so anyway, this poem is called Little Stream. In less time than you can imagine, I was four years old. Was I five? Suddenly I had yellow bell-bottom pants decked out with flowers and a baby doll to call my own. I called her Baby. My father was very tall with hands the size of entire episodes of Hockey Night in Canada, and I held his hand on that last day of his life. He was dying hard, but from the far reaches of his effort, he held my hand too. Or he didn't. Whatever, there was no pulling him back. I think there must be so many kinds of loneliness. I remember my parents drove theirs in a Dodge Polara. Later, my mom drove a green Ford Galaxy station wagon that my brother once jacked, then her luscious peach cougar, then a long-nosed Chrysler LeBaron. After that, she could no longer draw a clock. But first, I was 14. Donna Summer was the undisputed queen of disco. I drank apricot wine we found fermenting in a basement. The streets bloomed under that buzz, but I was unfit for teenaged boys with their sun-bleached hair. I was unfit for their confidence and their impatience to feel up girls in the bushes by Sarsen's Beach. The world was their waterbed. <clears throat> Near the end of his life, my father rolled out of his waterbed and snapped his brittle collarbone. Before that, my grandmother wore black, broad-heeled Oxfords. Loneliness can travel for generations in a pair of common-sense shoes. <clears throat> so now I'm going to read my poem, TBH, that was in, this was the poem that started the collection that I started writing when I was freaking the F out about the world, and it was in um, the Best Canadian Poetry, which was extremely exciting. Mm -hmm. It's a seven-part poem. It's um, a corona, so it's seven sonnets where the first line is the last line of the previous sonnet. And if you're really good, the last stanza is all the first lines, but I'm not that good. <laughs> Teenagers are pulling their braces off with their bare hands, illuminating the unlit valley of adolescence with their exposed midriffs, subjecting mothers to the sacrament of contempt. Mothers are crying into their cold-pressed cold non-GMO organic juice. The mothers of the mothers have had too much sun, fragile little snowbirds. Their bones are disintegrating, such extremely low thresholds for enduring discomfort. They can't even, they just can't. Nobody asks to be born, not to mention all that plastic accumulating in the landfill. When they said crisis response planning, they meant anti-wrinkle cream. Accustom yourself to plaintive disregard. Nobody asks to be a YouTube instructional video gone wrong, not to mention all that human trash accumulating in the belly of the whale. Not to mention all that human trash accumulating in the belly of the whale, nor the invisible doctrine of the invisible hand and its invisible backers, nor the offshore holdings of the father and the son and sons, currently in a lost position for tax purposes. Devastating, that feeling we failed ourselves in the land of opportunity, that uncertain sickly appetite to please. Think of something meaningful to say to the kids. TBH, freedom for the pike is death for the minnows. The body keeps the score, our long history of anxiety in the province of ongoing extirpation. 
Still, there is the miracle of the softening mud and dog shit, flagrant uproar of the, hum of the hermit thrush, the white-throated sparrow, the brown creeper, the earth turning again toward warm days. The wonder of the body, TPH, is its capacity for punishment. The wonder of the body, TBH, is its capacity for punishment. We told our daughters, do not walk through that park. We said, you are a public space and it will not soon end. You are open for business 24-7, sweetheart. That age-old Madonna, she has no respect for herself, divide. The need to think critically about a safe space. Say yes. Say yes to the dress. Say no. Say sorry. Say my fault. Say please. Anyway, what she can or can't eat is practically all she will think about. A nuanced dance of tactics and selection and the Instagram effect, now that nature isn't natural. Confession of our faults is the next thing to innocence. Follow the thought of envy. The rich live. The rich live longer everywhere. The rich live. The rich live longer everywhere. The rich think. The rich think about think pieces. By think piece, they mean hip and knee replacement surgery. By hip and knee replacement <laughs> surgery, they mean inheritance. By inheritance, they mean embrace sincerity. By embrace sincerity, they mean deposit the proceeds of social conditioning. They mean to say efficiency algorithms are their jam. They mean welcome to the so-called sharing economy. We push the walk button. We push the walk button again. We push the walk button again. We are on fire at the intersection. Our bones are consumed in the noise, the weather. Some girls imagine they feel worse than they do. They get into a dither just by thinking too much about themselves. They get into a dither just by thinking too much about themselves. Their informational appliances are always at their fingertips. Their fingertips are always on the receiving end of the global supply chain, always on the receiving end of stand-out online dating photos, always on the receiving end of a palatable version of demographically segmented market variables, always on the receiving end of the body in trouble, brought on by an insufficiency of imagination and upcycled dresses, brought on by the absence of absence, and yet the plastic particulate matter of a bifurcated heart. Your continued participation serves as express consent. Bring your noise-canceling headphones. The Lord helps those who help themselves. Because the Lord helps those who help themselves, because all the cats want to dance with the natural mutation, because of the heat-trapping nature of sweet little 16, because of the inability to recall the sequence of traumatic events, because of the tendency of attention to be affected by recurring thoughts, because of record-breaking high temperatures, because of mitigation and adaptation, because of benzodiazepine, because of 21 words used to describe only women, because of sharks, dogs, mountains, elevators and mosquitoes, because of black leg ticks and American presidential elections, because of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, because of smiley face emoticons, because of, a, because of clinical levels of acquisitiveness. Because of clinical levels of acquisitiveness and all the angels and saints in their spiritual gangster t-shirts, all the latest patrons of leisure, style, and taste, all the latest patrons of teenage girls, angular and hungry, feeling their supreme moment of destiny, teenage girls waiting to spring into time, and by time they mean take their husband's name, and by all the angels and saints they mean reality TV stars. They mean they have no sense of their over-determined circumstances. This poem is bitter. This poem has gone to fat. This poem is crushing the dreams of teenaged girls. It tells them they are still unloved. But those girls are laughing, and this poem is an old bitch. And teenagers are pulling their braces off with their bare hands. Yes. Happy. Yes. <laughs>
So I'm just going to read two more poems. <clears throat> They're a little cheerier, actually. <laughs> this one, I wrote them uh, over the summer. Uh, this one's called Embodied. <clears throat> On the way to our rental cottage, I see Kay in the parking lot of our town's charming bakery and gourmet food shop. After we greet one another, from the deep recesses of my psyche, my father tells her, H is inside buying saucy shits. Then Kay tells me, Jay's at home. Then Kay tells me she left Jay at home to do the linens, like a weird 1950s throwback. It relaxes her, Kay says. She doesn't even notice my dad. These days, my father is one long occupying dad joke. Perhaps it is my age, so close now to his final age, to the last time we talked, to his demanding pain. And why does my friend Jay iron her sheets? I think it is safe to blame the mother. <laughs> later on, the return of my, later on the return half of my long swim with H, I look toward the beckoning dock and door to this thin place opened by the swimming noodle tucked securely under my arms. My mom takes my physical form and quips. It's a long way to Tipperary. Sometimes my mom just starts singing, make the world go away, although she only remembers the first two lines, and we never need a thin place for her to pop up with that little number. I have my mother's legs and my mother's belly and her high school grad photo tattooed on my arm. They're such good parents, my mom and dad, always returning to meet my grief and still insisting if I'm going to live in their house, it's going to be by their rules. My last poem is a little ode to my dog I wrote before my dog passed away, but anyway, she died at the beginning of the summer, but this describes her quite accurately, I think. She was a little dervish or something. She was, a little, she was, she was full of all kinds of things. We would say now that she wasn't a good dog, but she was a great dog. So, my dog and I. Children squeal when they see my dog. They say, is it a girl or a boy? always the hammer of gender. Female, I say, but she doesn't think of herself as girl or boy. My dog is anxious. It's separation, mostly, or it's moral panic, driven by the strangers past, walking past our front window, murmuring to their own dog, good boy, good girl. What happened in those brief weeks before I found her? My dog alone each night in the empty store with the red eggs at light. My dog in the box full of puppies from the land of backroom breeders. I shrink from that thought, and also how my dog flinches when I clip the collar around her neck. I suppose my dog and I are free enterprise, each other's sanctuary in this perpetual hour of late stage, cataleptic searching, riding the deep wave of the worldwide shopping mall, not so much happy as alive with bad thoughts, my dog and I. When I leave my dog, she climbs to her perch at the window, vigilant. When I return home, she barks and barks. Frabjus, she cries, frabjus. <laughs> Thank you. That was Nancy Jill Cullen. Let's give her another hand. And that was from an October 25th book launch and reading event held at Novel Idea. Nancy Joe Cullen reading from both new and selected work. Up next from it that evening, here is Anita Dolman, also reading from New and Selected Work as well. So here we go. Up next, Anita Dolman is the author of Lost Enough, a collection of 
short stories and co-editor of Motherhood in Precarious Times, an anthology of poetry and nonfiction. Her poetry and fiction have appeared in numerous journals, magazines, and anthologies, including another dysfunctional cancer poem anthology, uh, Canadian Ginger, Hamilton Arts and Letters, Arc Poetry Magazine, On Spec, Grain, Prism, International, The Antigonish Review, and uh, Triangulation, Lost Voices. She is the author of two poetry chapbooks, was a finalist for the 2015 Alberta Magazine Award for Fiction, and is a contributing editor for Arc Poetry Magazine. Let's bring up Anita Dolman. Thank you, Bruce, and thank you for organizing all this. And thanks to Nikki and to Nancy Joe for agreeing to it. Thank you for being the catalyst. Yay! Oh, go on, my chat. I asked Nikki if she wanted me to end with a, a happy poem or a depressing poem, and then I realized afterwards I don't know where I was going to get a happy poem from. <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> Calico. Red. Picture of me propped up weeks old. Red wisps and angels pass. My dad's disappointment, a shadow yet to fall over the next photo as I fade to blonde. Broken legacy me. What I would give later to have stayed red. To be Anne in place of Anita, unfolding poetic in Diana's arms. A rose in place of a lily. A dagger in place of a bow. Blonde. We don't have the most fun, just suffer the most punchlines. <laughs> None of us are what you think. We don't care what you think, but we have to. I'm a thought of big tits and bouncing hair. Double dare you to hear a whole sentence coming from my blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Brunette, baby, this is it. Suits me perfect. We're in business now, on fire. How did I never think of this before? This is freedom, sexy freedom. Skin like moonlight, hair mahogany. I'm like furniture. I look like fucking furniture. <laughs> Baby, wash me out. <laughs> White, an isolated incident. Freak of poor design. Silver threaded 18, a web by 35. My mother's hair, her nature too. I grow calico as I get older. Strawberry and ice, gray and yellow, sun bleach and streaks of limelight. Please don't ask me to dye this, honey. My stylist pleads, ankles wobbling atop five-inch suede stilettos. Don't you know people pay good money to look like you these days? Orange. I give birth to a ginger baby, boy and a conduit, a color that lasts. Hand me down jeans that stay handed. More my family than me. A tinderbox of red will and wit. At seven, he says, it's really more orange. Why does everyone call it red? Your guess is as good as mine, kid. Maybe it's a metaphor. Uh, this book, Motherhood in Precarious Times, uh, came out um, from Demeter Press last year. And it was an amazing experience to put together uh, with uh, authors from Palestine um, throughout the United States 
and Canada telling um, their stories of how they um, have perceived motherhood either in themselves or others um, in some really um, horrible situations and uh, also facing things like climate change and making the decision to uh, be or not be a mother um, in light of that. Uh, so it was great to work on. Um, I had a contribution as as well as uh, editing it. So uh, this is my poem, Shoes. She tells stories about the war, the man who hid in their attic that fall until the SS found him and the trains took him away to the work camp, she thinks. But there was no telling and nothing anyone could have done. And there was her cousin, or someone's cousin, who got his balls blown off, shot clear off right there in the front yard, and who died just hours, just minutes or seconds or days later, bled to death somewhere around the middle of the war, maybe 1943, sometime when the schools were closed, which they were then, often. But not, she thinks, when she fell in the road, twisting her ankle in the crater by the bridge, the shell of the bomb lying there like a target, intact, and she wanting to get closer to see it because she was 12 and had never seen one like that, unshattered, just lying in the road. But the scars, those are from her shoes, too small for growing, worn and worn, squeezing her toes together, shifting their architecture, so that now, five decades later, she can't find shoes that fit, that don't crush the tiny mounds that were once baby toes and now sit shoved up, eternally raw pink and useless on top of her feet. But it was the war then, and who could buy shoes? There was so little, and the whole baby, uh, the whole family had scurvy the one year, even the baby, who would scream and scream and scream in the dark, in the basement, in the blackouts, when the bombs fell, and there was so much else to think about. This one starts with a quote from Alice Monroe who uh, lived in the same town I grew up in in southern Ontario. I never, 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 never thought I would end up in Huron County. <laughs> I'm just glad I left. <laughs> for Gwen Benoit. This town was too much never for us. You and the vestiges of colonization, her and the mutterings of resentment as she collected her mail. Me and the way the smelter's sky still glows orange over the cracked sidewalk. The memories of foundry dust thick in the shadows of the empty stone facades of Stedman's, its shelves overflowing with plastic dolls and gossip, and the women's apparel where they measured me for my first bra, and down the block the hardware store where I bought myself my first pair of pliers, avoided my father's mistress along with his lecture on the, popular si on the proper sizing of screws, Better to watch our farm hands, my small voice tucked in as they worked, their calloused fingers repelling splinters, never flinching from black mold or rusted nails, or teaching a girl how to haul and stack bales, tar shingles in the sun. At the end of the street, one of the few things that remain, which you would remember too, a brand name furniture store, once lined with black lacquer hope chests, etched in creams and reds, golden Chinese farmers and tiny parasoled women I coveted when I was 12. I missed you and, Alec and Alice's existence, like I missed most of this county at the time. Between bad timing and distraction, 
too busy with being and, and longing for the beauty of an elsewhere, for a strong box to hold the inevitabilities of me and my imagined escape into somewhere real. Misplaced. Where are all the pens I've lost? <laughs> Whose homes? What dustbins? What sewer grates? And what have they written without me? <laughs> okay, that was close to cheerful. <laughs> the contender. Snow falls in the capital. All these things that dust does. Whenever I write about you, I cry. The stupid pen skips unbalanced and I start over or want to. It's just the minutia of frozen drops of water, crystals of skin or sand, little gatherings of intent. You could have been someone, but if you were, I probably wouldn't have noticed. Um, the uh, Bi Arts Festival started a couple years ago um, in Toronto, and uh, I had the privilege to uh, read there last year, um, and now I've had the privilege um, to uh, be one of the editors for uh, their Crush uh, zine that they do every year, uh, to which I contributed this, this year. I will always see R2-D2 as Bi now. <laughs> Listening to a podcast on the history of the word bisexual, our son says, so if they used to think people like you and dad were fictional, I must be made up too, since I'm your kid. <laughs> Better at 11 than I ever was at existing in the places we're not allowed to. He seizes the enthusiastic sarcasm of potential. That's cool. He grins, blue eyes sparkling with the joke he's holding in. Then do you think I could hang out with R2-D2, Mom? Since we are both fictional? <laughs> there we are. A last poem. Spiced chocolate. I fall in a kind of love with any woman who brings me spiced chocolate. How do they know I love this? I don't remember ever saying, yet they show up with electric flavors of cocoa to pitch poetry or thanks or woo, everything from soothe to scorch. The secret to sweetness is in the salt. Contrast is light pressed to shadow. I ramble from my topics. My tongue stumbles, slides along yes, please, thank you, wonderful, beautiful, delicious. What I need is a synonym for balance, for being snapped perfectly so you don't crumble, for being given away in two directions like a metaphor, but sweeter. Thank you. Was Anita Dolman? Let's give her another hand.
And again, that was from an oct- uh, happened on October 22nd, a uh, book launch and reading event held at Novel Idea Bookstore. And you just heard a reading by Anita Dolman, and then she's reading from her own selected work. Up next from it, here is Vancouver poet and author Nikki uh, Reimer, who was launching and reading from her latest collection of poetry, and that was called My Heart is a Rose Manhattan. So here is Nikki. Up next, Nikki Reimer is a carbon-based life form who lives in the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta. She writes poetry, essays, and criticism, yells on the internet, and makes digital art. Published books are My Heart is a Rose Manhattan, Down Verse, and Sick. Uh, several more are in progress. Creative and nonfiction work has appeared but that means her creative and nonfiction work has appeared on stages, billboards, public art exhibition exhibits, pop-up bistro menus, and in various magazines, <laughs> journals, and anthologies. Let's bring up Nikki Reimer. I feel really good about being behind this thing. This is so solid. It's like normally when you're standing, you feel so like exposed. There's nowhere to put, like, you can't see my legs. I love it. It's, um, I was supposed to come to King t- uh, Kingston in 2010. I had a, um, an art piece that was part of a conference uh, called Animals and Animality. Uh, and I got my period that morning took the cab to the airport and by the time I got to the airport I just was feeling so horrendous that I had to cancel my flight. It was bitterly disappointing so um, I'm glad to be here nine years later finally. (laughs) Thank you for coming. Sorry about uh, the menstruation comments. (laughs) You're at a poetry reading. You're comfortable with bodies. (laughs) Ask yourself what does the culture want? Ask yourself What can I do for the culture? Ask yourself, what does the culture need? Ask yourself, what does the culture know? Ask yourself, who died? Who is dying? Who is dead? Ask yourself, does the culture want me? Ask yourself, how can I make the culture want me? Ask yourself, am I ready? Am I camera ready? Am I camera ready for the culture? Ask yourself, am I contributing? Am I a contributing cultural worker? Ask yourself, does the culture see me? How can I be better seen? How can I be seen and appreciated by the culture? Ask yourself, who contributes? Who uses resources? Who shares their resources? Who takes up space? Who is allowed to take up space? Ask yourself, am I part of the culture? Am I embedded inside the culture? How can I wedge myself further into the culture? Uh, This book is like, uh, I don't know, it's like angsty. I don't know how I find it. 
yeah, it's writing uh, around trauma and grief and through it and uh, like sometimes actually touching it, but mostly like skirting around it. Tone your shit. Corpse pose is a preparation for handstand. Handstand is a preparation for handstand. <clears throat> Bovine rutting. A headshot against a blue backdrop. Every seven years, we become another. A shot of seven people alternately seated on plush leather chairs or standing. This poem is value added, like tonally. A close-up shot of a man holding a tray of vials. Take a look at the growth. Take a look at the earnings. A headshot of a man and a woman in front of a building. Time gets to be like tectonic plates. You get really comfortable with linear disintegration. A headshot of a man against a background of a painting. I just reached my iron goal for today. A shot of a woman sitting on rocks by a river. The ducks rest in pairs in the man-made pond beside the smart technologies building. A shot of several people bent over a laptop. It's always man-made or ready-made, but never woman-made. I just reached my calcium goal for today. <laughs> never person-made. A shot of a federal finance minister trying on a pair of sneakers. A calendar reminder to do glute bridge and plank exercises. A headshot of a woman leaning against a building. The surge of endorphins when the music gets really sad. How the nervous system takes over the cerebellum. A shot of several people bent over an indeterminate mechanical process. I lift the laptop to my ear, trying to parse out the words you are singing. A shot of the woman who was earlier leaning against a building with a man. I just reached my stretch goal for today. To me monk, to me monk, to me monk. A shot of a man seated at a desk with several computer monitors behind him. The sight of the poem's ghastly emotional outburst. A shot of two women looking at a laptop. I just reached my potassium goal for today. <laughs> A shot of my face against a prairie-weathered building. I just reached my sadness goal for today. Mm -hmm. Let's try. Mm -hmm. um, who goes on Facebook? Mm -hmm. Sure. Two people admit it. Who, who admit Three people, people, four people, six, seven, eight. I love it. Okay, uh, so... I, I, I had to work on my social media addiction, and um, I also had to, I don't know if you know, you can turn off uh, the memories that you get, so it's like on this day, blah, 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 on this day, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's, yeah, if, you're, if there's like triggers, you can like turn that whole thing off, so that's cool. Um, on social media, there seem to be, uh, there's these national days that, there's hashtag holidays. Um, and National Sibling Day seemed to happen every four months. So it was like, it wasn't like, like going through that particular trigger once a year is bad enough, but like, it's like a fake thing. And it like every four months people are like, oh, 
I've got siblings, they're alive. And I'm like, yay, you're cool. Um, so I got really bitter and then I wrote this poem. That was a long, that was a long explanation. <clears throat> National Day. It's National Fibbing Day. Speak only in white lies to your closest friends. Share the results here. It's National Cribbing Day. Skim the internet for notes to use on your next exam or test. Bonus points if the test involves a body cavity search. It's National Ribbing Day. Sew a beveled edge on the hems of all your clothing. Post photos of your results here. It's National Tribbing Day. Attempt to dry hump the human closest to you. Post a picture of their facial reaction. Extra credit for selfies. It's National Bibbing Day. All bib, all the time. It's National Selvage Week. Post a picture of your priciest denim pants. Describe how your ass looks in them. Describe how they make you. Describe how they make you feel. Rules for better living. One, I love you. Two, animals bite. Three, food is hot. Four, it's not always about you. Five, can you legitimately not put the empty almond milk container back in the fridge? <laughs> Six, shut up. <laughs> A tale regarding the funniest time I broke my clavicle. All these minor tragedies remind us not to take ourselves too seriously. Every new fracture a gift from the gods. Make a calendar reminder to reactivate your Dropbox Pro account. Those terabytes will come in handy real soon. When I hit the ground, I couldn't breathe for a second, two seconds, three seconds, four seconds. I might be less narcissistic if I had a baby. Remember that milk is murder. Remember the fluid gush when shock leaves the body. Remember how my period stopped when they told me you died. Started right up again a week later like nothing had happened. Drip, <coughs> drip, drip. Sudden stress always makes me poop. It's the way of my people. The fake Mennonites, alcoholics, anxious, shitty little heathens. <coughs> Um, this is a poem that I would like to dedicate to Canlet. It's called I Will Not Say Rape Culture. Uh, and the form of the poem, if you've read uh, Vivek Shreya's Even This Page is White, um, the form, uh, kind of the, the, uh, the form that she's playing with um, in some of those poems, I, I use that in this poem. Do you feel implicated? Does it make you uncomfortable? Are you shamed? Are you worried? Did we misinterpret? Do we gossip? Is it problematic? Are we destroying the fabric? Do you feel guilty? <coughs> Did you take pictures? Do you feel powerful? Should I act the inquisitor or do you find me rude? Do you feel unsafe? Does my voice make you nervous? Are my posts mightier? 
Do you feel unsafe? Do I make you feel unsafe? Who here likes camping? Not me. <laughs> Who here doesn't like camping? Doesn't like it. Who here doesn't like camping and you're in a long-term domestic partnership with a person who likes camping? <laughs> All right. This is for my partner. I want to look like a person who goes camping without actually being a person who goes camping. <laughs> it's so authentic, like raw denim on the long weekend, or the SPF 60 they made me toss at security. I'm squeaky clean, prepackaged materialism, pine scented, but I won't use a pit toilet. How about a bay blanket? Can we get this effect with soy candles? I don't care what it is, as long as it's a heritage blend. Can we settle in here? Is this place off the grid? Should I tie a special knot? Could we settle in here? Do you like my new pocket knife? Is there a place to hide? Could we settle in here? He goes camping by himself now. <laughs> Smart woman. <laughs> the long neoliberal foment you had me at molecular discord. You had me at grow a pair. You had me at the word literally 17 times in a row. Now I am resting in the seat of my own uncertainty. Now I am practicing detached mindfulness. Look, Ma, I'm not basting. I'm not brooding. I'm giving up all attempts at control. I'm not even thinking about smart goals. I may not be the content provider you're looking for. Hello from the other side of hubris. Um, I just I just saved my friend's life twice. Uh, it kind of fucked me up. Um, so I wrote this poem for them, uh, which takes some lines from Frank O'Hara. Meditations in an emergency. I don't know why bodies are so perilously fragile. Yet I trust the sanity of my vessel, and we're still here, aren't we? Hearts pumping, lungs flapping, blood thronging in tiny rivulets under the skin. Still here, trying to divorce ourselves from Canlit, crafting notes for the revolution, making plans for what might come after. If it sinks, it may well be an answer. My hands shook when I stabbed you in the thigh, Needle held for 60 seconds rather than three because nerves messed up my ability to count and I kept having to start over. Adrenaline coursing us through the emergency to the reasoning of the eternal voices. Where's Frank O'Hara when we need him? Dead and buried, victim of a dune buggy on Fire Island after a night of drinking. The deck copy said, also a poet. One can only hope to be so eulogized after a lifetime of hard living, hazard skirted, and the waves which have kept me from reaching you. Thank you. That was Nikki Reimer. Let's give her another hand. How about one more for the three of them? Yeah. 
Well, thank you for all coming out. I'm sure that the all three of the <coughs> poets would love to chat with you. And uh, I see some books up here from everybody, actually. And this is the one. I couldn't see what you were reading from where I was. Oh. Was it all from here? It was all from there, yep. Perfect. <laughs> well, thank you again for coming out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And from a book launch and reading event held at Novel Idea Bookstore on uh, October 25th, you just heard a reading by Vancouver poet and author Nikki Reimer, a launching and reading from her latest collection of poetry called My Heart is a Rose Manhattan. And I'd like to... Still got quite a bit of time here this afternoon, and I do want to spend some time because we have a number. I kind of went over the most, uh, passed over a few events, and I may get back to those as well that are coming up soon, but I've kind of had to neglect some of the uh, calls for submissions as of late uh, just because there hasn't been time. So I think I'm going to move into that instead now. So I've got some calls for submissions or part participation. Um, trying to see if there's anything else in here. Well, I might just give it a plug. I mean, I work there. So uh, also, I, yeah, I'm just a receptionist, part-time casual at the Agnes Etherington Art Center. But just for those of you I've talked to and uh, tried to remind you, there is... Just really only a little over a week left there uh, for the current exhibits that are there. So I know that a few of you are probably listening, and I thought I'd pass that reminder on in case I don't run into you on the street or something uh, that uh, December 1st is the final day for nearly the whole gallery. So... Uh, you might want to, if you've been interested and thought about going and haven't yet, you might want to do it this coming, either this weekend or this coming week. So throw that out there. But calls for submissions. Uh, got one uh, with a uh, very quickly approaching deadline, December 1st. It's for Vellum, uh, Contemporary Poetry. Uh, and it says it has announced its submissions for... Issue 17.1, uh, I guess, are open, and the theme is home. Uh, they appreciate it looks like a loose interpretation of theme. Uh, they even give some ideas. Uh, uh, trying to read here and see if I can put it. Well, it's, it, I'm just going to read you these few lines from their uh, submission guidelines. Uh, sometimes we find shelter in people, in things. Maybe our ideas of home exist in uh, multitudes as different objects or spaces, uh, maybe now or merely as memory. So it says in this issue, we want to explore what these homes are and what they mean to us. So uh, check it out if you're interested. It's Vellum, uh, Vellum, uh, poet, uh, Vellum, Vellum Contemporary Poetry. Uh, LitMag, I believe, is what they go by, but here's their website. Uh, HTTP uh, colon uh, slash slash V-A-L-L-U-M-M-A-G dot com. And then if you want to go directly to their submission page, 
uh, just uh, dash uh, or slash uh, submissions. Or I guess it's singular. Submission.html. So there you go. Uh, also, there's a call for musicians. Uh, Artfest Kingston, who uh, graciously uh, allows space for Poetry Art Fest in the summertime, is also this will be the second year they've done a Christmas art and craft show here. This year it's going to actually be at, uh, at uh, the St. Lawrence College. Uh, thought I had it listed here. Need to fix that, I guess. Uh, but it's going to be there, St. Lawrence College. And uh, there are Kingston Christmas and Art and Craft Show. Uh, we'll run uh, from 90, uh, 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. on the 7th of December. And uh, 8, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on the 8th. Uh, they're looking for musicians to fill 45-minute sets. Uh, donation, yeah, they'll be set up with a donation jar at uh, Mistletoe Cafe. And uh, if you're interested, I'm going to suggest you just go to their website and get a contact. I'm sure there's a way to contact Lori McDonald there, who is uh, the executive or artistic director of uh, the whole uh, Art Fest Ontario that puts on... Uh, all these different events in different locations. Anyway, uh, it is, uh, get to it here. I just want to make sure I believe I know it, but it is www.artfest. I'm going to give you Artfest Kingston because I know it'll take you directly there. www.art, well, just uh, Google search, Artfest Kingston, and, it, uh, and, uh, and, that would be the easiest, and go to Christmas Art and Craft Show. Uh, let's see what else we've got coming up here for calls. Uh, let's see. I think I'm going to save this one. We do have another call coming up uh, for the middle of December, uh, but it's Devour Art and Lit Canada. It is a bi or a semi-annual. Uh, so twice a year, summer and winter, a uh, call is out for the winter. I'm going to spend more time with this because it's fairly long, uh, has a number of different, uh, quite a bit of different information about uh, where to submit and who to submit. And uh, I'm going to, that will be at the top of my list next week. And I'll still give everybody still a couple of weeks to get everything and if they're interested, there is also a call for submissions for donated artwork to Cezanne's uh, Closet. Uh, the Union Gallery is accepting submissions, uh, and uh, the event will take place on February 8th. Deadline for the submissions is December 20th, so you've still got time, but uh, it's coming up soon. So it says... Uh, please email uh, Quinn K. Or I'm sorry, Q U I N N V E N A B L E. So Venable, I guess, at U uh, at Union Gallery. So that's U G L G A L L E R Y at QueenGU.ca with inquiries about donating artwork. And uh, Juniper. Doesn't reopen until January, so I'm just going through the list here to make sure I'm not leaving anything out. 
couple of uh, events I didn't mention that are coming up. Uh, this coming kind of stopped on Tuesday, so uh, this coming Wednesday, uh, there's a weekly writing group that meets uh, every Wednesday night, essentially 11 months out of the year, every month except for August. Uh, and at uh, this time of year, they're meeting at 7 p.m., uh, in room uh, 239 of Stoffer Library. So uh, it says uh, uh, they uh, meet to critique and support one another's writing, and they work with everything, fiction, poetry, nonfiction, memoir, just about everything. If you're interested, oh, that next one's coming up uh, this Wednesday. You always meet on Wednesday, November 27th, 7 p.m. again at... Uh, Stoffer Library, room 239. If you're interested, contact uh, Dave Pratt. It's uh, dpratt1939 at hotmail.com. Uh, there is also, well, I think I'm getting back to where I started. Let's see what else can I do here. Oh, I might as well do this one. A week from tomorrow, uh, this will be the last one I'll get to today. Uh, started out with Saf Decaf, so it's Haley Sarfeld and uh, Steph Kiak. Uh, first uh, started this uh, exactly a year ago in December. Uh, not quite a year, I guess. So in December, but it is uh, a monthly charity series uh, that is now hosted by Haley Sarfeld still and uh, with uh, Steph overseas, uh, Anthea Fever. And so uh, each month they sponsor a different uh, socially responsible charity. And this month's charity will be HARS um, Kingston. I already mentioned them in, the, uh, in that one event coming up uh, this uh, Monday night. Uh, so there will be hot chocolate. So it's our hot chocolate charity series. It's at the Community House, 99 York Street. It's always the last Saturday of the month. So uh, this one is... Uh, Saturday, November 30th, so a week from tomorrow, from 2 until 4.30. Uh, they're on Facebook, uh, Hot Chocolate Charity Concert. Uh, check, uh, check that out. Uh, you can find it there. So there you go. And with that, uh, it's getting close enough now. I start to need to do this, I guess, is thank you for tuning in today and Again, you have been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located, again, in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. Uh, we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. And uh want to remind you again... Uh, my usual hourly, other hour, hourly announcement, I guess, is that uh, both hours of this show each week are uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after the show ends and I get home. Uh, you can find them there at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. Uh, they will remain there for four years. So uh, if you miss something today or part of something and want to catch it again, you can do it there. I hope you can tune in next week, and uh, I think I'll be doing mostly book launches and things again next week, maybe even an interview. So we'll see uh, coming. I hope you can stay tuned uh, coming up at the top of the hour for uh, two hours of East Coast music. 
in a show called Saltwater Music, hosted by Rob Carnell. Again, that'll be right at the top of the hour, and uh, right after all of this, again, uh, thank you all so much for tuning in today. Hope you have a wonderful weekend, a wonderful week ahead, and uh, hope I can catch you here next week. Have a great, have a great night to begin it. How's that? Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.